close connection with Colossians chapter 3, Romans chapter 6, verses 8, verses 8 through 10. hear the word of God. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for Especially the teaching of this chapter, Romans chapter 6. It is, it's so powerful in its, its teaching on the Christian life. It belongs together with Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 5. The life of the believer, the new man being lived out in Christ. God, we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive the truth of this passage and that you might greatly shed light, O Holy Spirit, upon the text through the preaching of the word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin a new section that is within this broader section, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, that section stands on its own. And it's really a power-packed passage. Uh, and we're taking it in small chunks, as, as you may have noticed. But as we look at this new section within the broader section, verses 8 through 10, I want to notice something for you about the way Paul is building his case. He is describing, as you know, and this is the overarching thought that you have to keep in mind. He is describing the position of the Christian man. You may remember I asked, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, what is a Christian and am I a Christian? This is a wonderful chapter, and especially verses 1 through 14, that answers those two questions. The position of the Christian man is this. He's a man who's in Christ. He's a new man. The old has passed, the new has come. Well, that's 2 Corinthians 5. But it's the very teaching of this chapter. The Christian is a man who is baptized into Jesus Christ, verse 3. And he's thus baptized into his death and burial to sin. And this is what I want to notice about the way that Paul builds his case in describing the position of the true Christian. And that is the way he makes a fundamental assertion about the Christian man who is in Christ. And then he sets out to prove it by what we know, or at least what we ought to know. He does this three times. Verse uh, verse two, he states the position of the Christian like this. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? The Christian is someone who has died to sin. That's who the Christian is. That describes his position. And then what you notice in verses 3 and 4 is that he tells us how we know that. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death and thus made to partake of his burial and his resurrection? Do you not know that? That is what a Christian is. He does it again in verses 5 through 7. The Christian position is this. If we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If we've partaken of his death, surely we will partake of the virtue and the power and the life that he experienced in his resurrection. That's the Christian position. And how do we know this? Well, look at verse 6. Knowing. Verse 3, it was do you not know. Here it's knowing. Knowing this. That our old man was crucified with him and so on. 
That's what we considered last time, verses 6 and 7. We know that if we died with him, we shall also be raised with him. Why? Because our old man was crucified with him, and so forth. Verses 6 and 7, it's what we know. But then in verses 8 through 10, he does the same thing. It's the same structure and the same pattern. He describes the position of the Christian man like this. The man who's in Christ. The man who's baptized into Jesus. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You notice more or less that verse 8 is a restatement of verse 5. We know that if we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. That is the assertion and the description of the Christian in those two verses. We shall enjoy with him this new life he now enjoys by virtue of his resurrection and his death to sin at the cross. And how do we know this? Well, again, notice, just as we saw in verse 6, so in verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. And on and on he goes. It is the knowledge of Christ's resurrection. It's what we know about his resurrection that assures us of what he says in verse 8, that if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. And I want to divide this passage, therefore, simply under two headings. What he says in verse 8, what is true of the Christian, and then verses 9 and 10, how we know it is true. How we know that it will be true of us if we are in Christ. So what he says in verse 8, look at it again more carefully. He is restating the position of the believer like this. The believer is one who died with Christ. He said that already, verses 3, 4, verses 6 and 7. Now he says it again. We've died with Christ. And what I've learned about myself, if I am in Christ, uh, to use the language of Paul in other places, the way that we've learned Christ. Well, what have I learned now that I'm a Christian? It's this, that it wasn't only Jesus who died on the cross, but that I died along with him. And that that is how I, I am to understand my own conversion. The old man, the man I once was, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. And that we might no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 6. And because of this, it follows that I shall also live with him. If I died with him on the cross, I shall also live with him. That is indeed the key thought here. Verses 8 through 10. If we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. I believe that if I've gone with him this far to the cross and into the grave, then it follows of necessity that I shall also live with him. I shall rise with him out of the grave. Not as something future. It's stated as a future tense. I shall rise. Well, you see, I'm able to say that right now. But it's the fulfillment, rather, of a condition. Something that follows after death. If I've died with him, and I know that, it follows, as a matter of course, that I shall also live with him even now. If I've died with Christ, it is assured to me, the believer, that I shall also live with him in the power of his resurrection, which is described in verse 4 as newness of life. Or verse 10, life to God. And do you notice what Paul says about this in verse 8? He says, we believe this. He says, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The meaning here is is precisely what it was in verse 5. He says, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. We believe in the sense that we are certain. Certainly this is bound to happen. 
We are assured. We are persuaded. We believe it. We believe that if Christ has died and we with him, that we shall also live in the likeness of his resurrection. We shall be raised with us or with him rather. In other words, it's obvious to us. As a matter of faith, as an article of Christian faith and Christian belief, given our baptism into Christ Jesus, that there's no way to enjoy only one side of this, but that both blessings are fully assured to every believer. And both are certain to happen to the man who is in Christ to be united to Christ is is to enjoy both fully. I'm talking about our death to sin and our life to God. We not only enjoy death to sin, that's the leading thought. Paul begins with that in verse 2. And you have to grasp that first. But then you have to see the other side of that. Do you remember I said last time that the Christian life is more than mere negation? It isn't just what isn't true of me. It's also what is positively true with me. If I am in Christ, not only am I dead to sin, but I am alive to God. And know that we would see that. So I would note that we are dealing with something that is objective. And that's why it is to be believed. And that's why it's certain. It isn't subjective, not primarily. Paul is not describing primarily the experience of the believer. But he is explaining what is objectively true of the man who is in Christ. It is objective because it is in him. And it is the result of his life and his actions. In just the same way. That it is objectively true to say of the man who is in Adam that he is under condemnation and he is a slave of sin. In just the same way that Adam's actions led to certain inevitable outcomes for mankind. You see, it's not just a matter of feelings whether you're in Adam or in Christ. It's what's true of you. It's a matter, if you like, of history. As in Adam, all men fell and were made by virtue of their union with him to die for his sin and and were thus made to participate and to partake of his single sin. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. So likewise, as a matter of historical fact, by virtue of our baptism into Jesus Christ, we have a part and a place at his cross and his resurrection. Now, I confess to you all that this is a great mystery. It is therefore called uh, by theologians, you may be aware of this, our mystical union with Jesus Christ. Why do they say that? Because, again, this is a matter of faith. This is a spiritual truth to be believed. And it is a spiritual truth which can only be apprehended and discerned by spiritual persons. But it is something which is real and something which the believer is able to know in his experience because it is true. Our mystical union with Jesus Christ. In just the same way the unbeliever is united to Adam as their head. In what I have been uh, describing here, we have something of the, the structure of the believer's sanctification. The way that we are to understand the foundation of personal holiness and growth in grace. In other words, how do I get to the experience, the subjective side of things? Well, let me put it like this. In sanctification or my own growth and grace, I do not begin with myself. Never. Indeed, it's when we begin with ourselves that we are bound to fail. And it's when we begin with ourselves that we get ourselves in trouble. 
But that is not the teaching of the Bible, beloved. The Bible tells us always to start with Jesus Christ. To consider the facts of his life. His person is the Son of God. The fact that he became man as the Son of God and bore our sins and thus suffered and died for me. And that he was raised again on the third day by the glory of the Father. And that in his resurrection he was declared to be the Son of God with power. That is the gospel of God that Paul begins with in Romans chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. And that is the the gospel that you read of in the four gospels. The facts of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the way that I am saved. Is by believing this. Not by believing in sanctification. Not by believing in justification. But by believing in Jesus Christ. As my salvation. By uh, as the confession says. Or the catechisms. By receiving and resting. On Jesus Christ as my savior. You note there the personal element. And it is this faith Paul says. Which unites me to Jesus Christ. It is what baptizes me into him. Verse 3. For by faith I not only believe in the contents of the gospel. I don't just read the gospels and say, I, you know, I think, I think this really happened. Well, I tell you, the demons, the demons believe like that. But I believe on the very person of Jesus Christ. I rest upon him as my personal savior, as a person. As the very son of God who is able to save me. I believe that. I apprehend him for myself. And I am apprehended by him and in him. I'm baptized into him Paul says. And it is on that basis. The basis of that kind of faith. That I am made new. A new creation. A new man. And I proceed to live a life of holiness. That is the structure of sanctification the believer's sanctification it is something that flows out of his union with christ it is something that results from his faith which unites him to christ and the renovation of his whole person after the image of christ only then does he begin to live out the christian life and do you notice that that too is a matter of faith did i not just say that we believe if we die if we died with christ we believe that we shall also live with him We begin with what is objectively true of Christ. And then we realize it's a matter of faith that because I am in Christ, it's true of me as well. And on the basis of that foundation, I proceed to live out the Christian life. I believe it. I receive it. I accept it as my salvation. My salvation involves and entails all of this. The total, not only the justification of the sinner. But the total moral renovation of the inner man after the image of Christ. And here is something. I I won't get very far in the Christian life until I am able to reckon this as true of me as well. I see it as true of Christ and and I believe it. But then I also am called to believe it as true of myself. And to proceed from that basis to live out the commands of scripture. Verses 11 through 12. We'll get there next time, God willing. But that is precisely Precisely where we'll end up. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, believe it. Therefore, he says, on that basis, 
do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. But I have one final thought to emphasize about verse 8. I want to make something of the word if. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You note uh, the same word is present in verse 5, and uh, the parallel is something I've pointed out several times. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If, well, I would say to you as well, we have to reckon with the if. Just as with every other word. To me, this word is highly important to our our understanding of these verses and our ability to apply them to ourselves as a matter of personal, practical concern. You may have noticed in in the course of the preaching of these sermons that it's a word I've been using a lot. I keep saying, if you're in Christ, then this is true of you. I, I, you know, notice I'm not saying because you're in Christ. I'm saying if you're in Christ, this is what is true of you. That's what Paul is doing as well. Here's the truth. It's the alarming truth. But it's a truth that needs to be said. And that needs to be uh, borne in mind. Even in Christian churches. And that is this. That there are many who claim to be Christians, but who are not. Those who say, I am in Christ, but who are not. And what is the difference between a man who merely claims to be a Christian and one who really is? It is this, Paul says. And try to get this as clear in your mind as you can and as clear in your heart as you can. This is how you know and this is how you tell the difference. And it is that what was true of Christ will be true of me as well if I am truly saved. And if not then my claim to know him will prove untrue. We have something here of what we call a credible profession of faith. You know, it's easy to go to the elders and to say, I believe in Jesus. He's my savior. He died for me. Well, that's a profession of faith. But what is it that makes it credible? How can we know that the man is really saved? Well, I confess there's no way to know for sure. But there are certain tests that you can apply to a man. And you may remember that we ended with this last time. How can I know that I am in Christ and that I am a Christian? And the answer, at least one of the answers, is that you have to look at a man's life. You have to look for this great and discernible change. You're looking for the presence of the new man, the operations of grace in his life. That he has died to sin and is now alive to God in Christ Jesus. That what Paul says in verses 8 And five are true of this person. For if we've been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's something that's true of every believer. It ought to be true of you if you claim to be a Christian. Likewise, verse 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The presence and the power of the new man who is in Christ. If we've really been united with Christ, you see, Paul is making a statement of condition. If we've really been united to him, certain things will be true of us automatically. They will follow of necessity. That's what he's saying in these two verses, verses 5 and 8. If we're really in Christ, then we've died to sin. And the old man is gone. The new man has come. And we're now living out a life alive to God along with Christ. That is my testimony if I am a Christian. You you notice Paul says the same thing uh, in verse 2 actually. Uh, the, this threefold parallel. He says it a little bit differently, though. He says, uh, he says, how, uh, excuse me, not verse two, verse three. 
He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death, into his death? It's the same thought. It's not necessarily all of his readers. It's only as many as were baptized into Christ. Well, they were also baptized into his death so that the power of sin in their life was vanquished. And so that they began now to live with God by virtue of the new life that they share with Christ in his resurrection. Not all, but only as many as. Let me give you one of the most stunning quotes of John Murray I've ever read. And I think it captures everything that we are considering in Romans chapter 6. He says, if we live in sin, we have not died to it. And if we have not died to it, we are not Christ's. But as we come to what he says in verses 9 and 10 as a second major point, we discover what it is that makes it so clear that if we have been united to Christ and thus we have died with him, we shall also live with him. Remember, that's the key thought. It's my certainty, my belief that I will live with Christ. That is now I will enjoy the power of his resurrection in my life today. That not only am I dead to sin, but I'm alive to God. The question is, if that is a description of the Christian, and I hope as well, the description of me, how do I know it? And again, you notice he states it as a matter of knowledge, knowing, verse 9, that Christ having been raised from the dead and so forth. The way that we know it will be true of us is because it was true of Christ first. And so it's what happened to Jesus Christ himself. That is what gives me certainty about myself if I am a Christian. It's what assures me that as I have died with him, so too I shall live with him even now. It's that I'm in him and that I'm united to him and that therefore whatever is true of him will also be true of me. And what happened to him? Well, he was raised, Paul says. You see, it isn't only true to say that he died to sin, but it's also true to say that he was raised. And having considered, well, and also let me say that his resurrection followed his death. And that same structure will appear in the life of the true convert. Having considered his death and its significance in verses 6 and 7, that was the prior sermon, we now turn to the other side in verses 8 through 10. The fact of his resurrection, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more and so on. He's emphasizing what is true of Christ in his resurrection. Now, that's already been stated in verse four. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. It was mentioned in verse five. If we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We see that, in other words, verses four and five, and I've said this over and over again. Although I doubt I can ever say it enough, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of my new life in Christ. But now he explains it. He explains Christ's own experience in the resurrection. What was true of him, first of all, and seeing that I will later be able to see in the following sermon how that is true of me as well. But let us see first what was true of Christ in his resurrection in relation to his death. And it means you notice four things. Christ having raised, been raised from the dead. That's a fundamental assertion. He says he dies no more. And death no longer has dominion over him. The death that he died. He died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives. He lives to God. Those are four assertions. Which I know are true. Because God raised his son from the dead. The first thing that I know about Jesus. In his resurrection. Is that he dies no more. 
that he's finished with death. Have we not seen this already? It's been a common theme in the verses leading up to this. It's true that Jesus Christ died, the God man. He died on the cross. He really did die. He experienced death. He really did lie in that grave for three days. But what Peter says in his Pentecost sermon is that death could not keep him. No, not him, the very son of God. And so he was raised in the glory of his person and by the glory of the father on the third day. And was it not thereby evident to us all? And does this not become, therefore, a matter and an article of Christian faith ever since that day that he dies no more? Ever since he was raised. Yes, he died on the cross that fateful Friday. But when he was raised, well, and let me also say that in the grave he laid under the power of death. But just as soon as he was raised, that was the end. He dies no more. You see, it's not enough in a sense to say Jesus died for me. Let me go beyond that and say he dies no more. Does not his resurrection prove that it is so? And so he says to build out the thought as a second point. Death no longer has dominion over him. Not only is he finished with death, but he's finished with its dominion, its power. Now it is true that death as a power and as a reign had uh, or, or held a kind of power over him at the cross. One which he voluntarily subjected himself to. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 that becoming the son of man, taking upon flesh, he tasted death. This was something he chose to do. For there was for him, unlike us, no necessity that he should die. But he subjected himself to its power. He brought himself under it. He allowed it to take hold of his body and to kill him on the cross. But what you need to realize is this, Paul says, that once he had tasted death, that was the end. Never again would he die nor come under its power. What shows me this? Well, what shows me this is that he was raised and that in his resurrection, he was declared once more by the father to be the son of God with power. Yes, death had a kind of dominion over him and it reigned in his life and in his body unto death. Romans chapter five, verse 21. But once he died and especially once he was raised, that was the end. Death no longer has dominion over him. But next, his death was, he says, a death to sin once for all. So we're not only considering death, but now his relation to sin. That in his death, and especially in his resurrection, he was finished with sin in connection with death. And that was something Paul says that was final and definite. Uh, to use the language of Hebrews, which comes up again and again, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. It was a death once for all. One death for sin. Not over and over again like you find in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But one final, perfect, and complete sacrifice for sin. It doesn't need to be repeated. And when he died and when he was raised, that was the end. That was the end of his relationship to sin. He died to sin once for all. Now let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Lest there be confusion. It doesn't mean that he died to sin as a power in this sense. Uh, that he had indwelling sin. 
that he possessed in his flesh an inclination to sin or even actual sin itself. It does not mean any of those things. When it says that he died to sin, it doesn't mean that he ever sinned or that he ever wanted to sin. It doesn't mean that for a single moment sin had any power over him to make him sin. Though it does mean that for us, doesn't it? That sin is a power results in not only the inclination to sin, but actual sin itself. But that wasn't true of Jesus, and thank God for that. He was totally holy, spotless, undefiled. And though he was tempted to sin, he never once for a moment even considered it. But what it does mean is this, that he died again to its reign and to its power in that sense. And how does it reign? It reigns unto death. It reigns even to that point. It was the source of all that he suffered and even to his death and his burial. But it can reign no further. That's what Paul says. Romans chapter 5 verse 21. That as sin reigned in death or unto death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Coming under the power of sin, it took him this far, even to the point of death and even death on the cross. And it was sin, the power of sin, that laid him in the grave. Oh, but now that he has been raised, Paul says... He's done once and forever. Now that he's died and been raised, sin is no more in the equation insofar as he is concerned. Not only is death out of the picture, but so too is death. He, uh, so too is sin. He's finished bearing it. He's finished forever with paying its penalty. It's out of the picture. It isn't in his life anymore. He doesn't live in the world of sin anymore. When he died, he went out of it altogether. But finally, and this is the ultimate proof of what he says in verse 8. Now that he's finished with death and thus it's, thus it's dominion and even sin itself, he's alive. And the life that he lives, he lives unto God. Think of what the resurrection meant for Jesus Christ. And what he began to experience, the dawning of a new day in his resurrection. Coming out from under the power of the law and of sin and of death. And what he began to experience. Again, the dawning of a new day and of a new life. Again, let us be clear what it does not mean to live unto God. It does not mean obedience. For the simple reason that he always obeyed the Father, even as he came under the law and the power of sin and death. Of course, it will mean that for us. It will mean obedience for us. To be alive to God will be the dawning of our own personal obedience. For there is no way for us to obey God so long as we are still enslaved to the power of sin. But thank God, it did not mean that for him. He was able to obey the Father perfectly, even as he came under the power and the dominion of sin and death. And that is part of the glory of his sacrifice. But what it does mean is this, that he now lives in the realm of life. That's what his resurrection means for him. That he is now alive to God. Now that he is raised, uh, Paul puts it this way, the life that he lives. Now is a new life. He is now enjoying what he enjoyed before. Before he came into the sinful world and began to suffer its awful consequences. The glory that he had with the Father before the world was made. He returned to that. Only now it is something beyond it. Because he does so not simply as the Son of God but the God-man. He begins to enjoy life to God as a man. 
He is raised as the God man out of sin, lifted into heaven itself. And there he lives in the presence of God and his angels and the saints who have gone before us. He lives forever now as the God man in the very atmosphere of God. Paul indicates something of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, when he says uh, that he is born a natural man, but he's raised a spiritual man. He is brought now into the realm and the sphere of the power and the life of God, which is the power of the spirit. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I can't help myself. That is where you live. If you're a Christian, you no longer live under the power and the kingdom of darkness, but you have been brought into the realm of the power and the life of God, which was operative in his resurrection. It is the power and the life of the Holy Spirit. But returning to Christ, we see that death meant one thing for him. It meant he had to face sin. He had to deal with it in God's wrath because of it. But having died, that was the end. He was then finished with sin. But when he was raised, the situation was entirely different. Now he deals entirely and exclusively with God. Not only is he now dead to sin, but he's alive to God. You see, that's the full statement. That's the full thought you have to grasp. That's the only way now to look at his life. As I said in an earlier sermon, quoting quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, look at him now. Don't just behold him as he was offered on the cross, but look at him as he now is, alive to God. That is now the life that he lives as the God-man, no longer as the sin-bearer, but one who is constantly enjoying the life of God in the Spirit, and thus who constantly supplies his church with power from on high. If you think again of what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, having received the spirit in his resurrection, he pours it out on the church. And as we begin to anticipate the argument of verse 11, which is where the application actually begins. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I think you can understand why I'm saving that for another sermon. I think I had enough to say on verses 8 and 10, but but just to begin to anticipate ourselves let us realize beloved that all of this is true of us in the inner man the new man if we are in christ if we are born again believers if we've been baptized into jesus christ what is true of christ is true of me the new man is one who has died to sin and is alive to god this is not only what is true of christ it's true of everyone who is a christian in this there is no essential difference Just as Jesus has died to sin, so have we. And if that, then it is also true to say that we shall live with him. We shall enjoy with him this newness of life. Again, verses 4 and 8. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That is the life of the Christian man. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Oh, does that describe you? He's describing the Christian, but is he describing you? And is that your testimony? Is that your profession of faith? How can we be certain? On what basis do we believe it will be true of us? Well, it is this, Paul says. It's just that we are able to look at him, first of all, his own life, death and resurrection, and clearly see that all this was true of him. 
And so the argument becomes whatever is true of him in his relation to sin and to God must of necessity be true of me as well if I am in him. And insofar as I believe and accept the facts of salvation concerning him and make my salvation and my life to rest upon those facts, therefore I may be certain those very things will be true of me as well. And it becomes, therefore, the task of the believer to believe them, to reckon these things as true of himself as well. Once again, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To realize this great and glorious truth about Jesus, but also about me. And to believe it as a matter of fact, Paul says. And do you believe that? Well, with God's help, we will go on to consider that and to explore it in detail in coming sermons. But let us now come to the table. I have promised the elders, and so I'm promising you, uh, although I don't ever want to give into time idolatry in the church, but that we will hold ourselves to 75 minutes as a service, and that's what I'm holding myself to, even in light of the changes in the order of service. You might notice we're right on track. And certainly, I, I, even though I think the worship of time is idolatry, I also think it can be sin uh, to hold people at my mercy and duly long, so please know that a timely and orderly service is something I still believe in. Matthew chapter 26, we read this. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What, what are you willing to give me uh, if I... Del- I'm sorry, this is not the correct verse. Verse 26, not verse 16. Uh, and, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broken, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, do you notice uh, the way in which, once again, the facts of our salvation are set forth as prominent, as the thing to be believed? That Jesus, the Son of God, took upon our nature. He touched our flesh. He became one of us. He partook of our nature. Sin accepted. And so he tasted the bitter consequences of sin, which is the worst aspect of sin, by the way. He never tasted personal sin, but he tasted its consequences. And so he tasted death. And so he tasted the wrath of God. He shed his blood and he died. That is the gospel of God. The facts of Jesus Christ, which include the facts, by the way, that not only was he raised, but that he's now reigning in heaven, providing and protecting and gathering his church. And he's preparing to come again on the last day. And what a day that will be. And we're to do this until he comes. We're to remember his death, but to look forward to his coming. And he sets this up as a memorial. It's more than a memorial, but but it's not less. It, It is a memorial. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Keep the facts of my gospel before the church always. And may they ever be to the church a matter of faith. And when Paul says, I want you to examine yourselves, it's just in the very light that, well, I was preaching. I want you to examine yourselves that you really do believe the facts of the gospel and that you believe them as a personal concern. 
Not just, well, I read my Bible and and I think that really happened, (laughs) but that I believe that Jesus died for me. And what is more, his grace is now at work in my life. I find that by his grace, I am changed thoroughly. I'm not only forgiven. Sin is not only pardoned, but sin is subdued in my life. Why? Because Jesus died for me. That is the result of my faith in him. Not only my certainty of forgiveness and thank God for that, but even beyond that, that the work of grace is operative in my life. But having said that and having realized that, I am also aware of my poverty and of my need for further grace. And Jesus sets this forth uh, to us again on the same basis. Grace to the believers on the basis of his life and his death. It is thus called a means of grace, a means of further grace in your life, which means a strengthening of faith, a strengthening of assurance, a strengthening of all the graces in your life. Graces of holiness, graces of mortification of sin. Well, as the Puritans would say, vivification, which means living out the new life to the full. I'm alive to God in Christ, but, well, how, how do I express it? I want to be more alive than I was before. And I want to know more fully the virtue and the power of his death and resurrection. This is... A gift to the church in the same way preaching and Christian fellowship and Christian singing and prayer, whereby we are strengthened in every grace. Uh, That's how you ought to examine yourself. Do you really believe that and do you really want that? I'll I'll let that stand not only as invitation, but also the fencing for now. Uh, Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask you that uh, through the administration of the supper that you would bless and nourish the faith of the faithful. And that you might strengthen in them every grace so that it would become to them a means of grace in the true sense, a means of of new and fresh grace coming into their lives. God, we confess to you our dependence upon you in every sense. And we would wish not to live by the law nor by works, but solely by our faith in the son of God, which is to say salvation by grace. Grant to grant uh, grant this to us, O God, through Christ, your son. Amen.